For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, and welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. It is episode 79 of the podcast, and I thank you for hanging out with me. I'm looking forward to you listening to my next guest because I really do think that this guy does a great job of kind of acting as a collective conscience of of media in town. I'm a big fan of his, and, and I'm glad that he had time to, to, to make this happen. And I love his story so much. And you'll hear it in here, us talking about it, where you have a guy who was a bouncer, was throwing people out of clubs and whatnot, and now he's on the copy desk for the Sun-Times. Like, that's incredible. To me, he is a a, a tremendous success story. And I think that his journey is really important, too, because it's steeped in hyper local journalism. That's kind of the school that Evan Moore comes from. He's a hyper local journalist that is now able to take all the things that he learned in doing that and use it. On a broader scale, he's bringing that type of sentiment and work ethic and microscope to larger issues. And I think it's it's very much needed. He is a voice that I, I just think it is really, if I'm gushing, I'm gushing because I think the dude is, is a special dude. And I don't say that about a lot of people. And I know I'm putting a lot of responsibility on him by saying this, but I, I think that this is one of those guys that is going to win awards. He's already won a couple of them, but he's one of those guys that you're, you're going to be like, man, I remember when that guy was just covering South Shore. or what, You know what I mean? Like Now he's going to be a national, international guy. But we had a great conversation about the path that he took to get to the Sun-Times and our shared love for Chicago and particularly the south side of Chicago. He's a fascinating interview. There's a lot to learn there. I hope you enjoy it. From the Sun-Times, Evan F. Moore. I wanted to talk with you about your days of being a uh, a, a bouncer. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I want to talk about that. What? How? Like, first of all, how does, how does that end up being something that you do? Oh, well, um... Long story. Uh, I guess I can shorten it up. What? No, you don't have to. That's the beauty of a podcast. You don't <laughs> okay. have to shorten it up. You can tell the long version if you want. Yeah, I know. Um, oh, so we're starting now? Yeah. We're, oh, okay. We're, we're talking. I told you. Like, no setup. <laughs> we're going. Okay. Well, 
Right after uh, college, I came back here to the city, and I was I somehow got was interning for one of the local unions, and um, I got friendly with another guy who was a union organizer. He, like we were both like Sox fans, and we kind of had that starting off. We was hang out like you know we playing fast fans at work and everything, and so once that was internship was over with. I was kind of wasn't working, and I knew that he worked for MP Shows, which is um, they what they what they do. Okay, what they do is they do a lot of indie punk rock shows around town. Like uh, at the time, like there would be at Logan Square Auditorium, Subterranean, uh, a couple other places in the city. So he calls me out one day, like, "Hey, you looking for a job?" I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> it was like when someone you like you know not doing anything, and someone calls you up, like to drop this in your lap. You're not gonna really think about it. You're gonna say, "Yeah." So. He told me what it was, what I had to do. So I met him at the Logan Square Auditorium, and he told me I'll be um, just making sure kids. These are mostly what they mostly did was, was punk shows. And so it was mostly, like, kids moshing and making sure nobody gets hurt, making sure nobody, like, jumps off the stage and stuff like that, like, easy stuff. Like, I was an offensive lineman in high school. I can, like, block. People, yeah, or tell people, like, <laughs> or tell people, like, no, I feel like I had been saying the other day about Kawhi Leonard, like, hey, like, let's <laughs> not doing that, you know? And so, so I showed up and I did that. And I did, I was, I was kind of pretty good at it. So it was something that, you know, like you could go to school for or anything like that. What's the worst injury you saw while doing that? Uh, okay. Um, hmm. It's, it's a lot of them. I was trying to think of a really good one because we're doing a podcast, but like, because, um, let me segue here, because um, after I was working at this place, another place, like, they went, they did, like I said, they did different um, venues in Chicago. So this town was, is this Barn Worker Park. So I was working there for a while, and what happened? It was like we had a hip hop night, and like, it was stuff that happened, unfortunately. And like, um, I remember these guys were fighting inside the bar. And we got them out, and they chased this guy down the street, and they beat the crap out of this guy. He was, like, literally motionless. They were still beating this guy. And his girlfriend hopped on him and was like, stop, stop. It was like, you know, bleep, you'll get it too. You know, and it was just, like, people want to hang out, man. Why are you <laughs> being so angry about it? Why is, it was just crazy just to, to watch that. But in terms of the story, there's lots of fights and people saying stuff they shouldn't say to black folks and they had to. Uh, put them under pressure. Oh, so <laughs> they had to so, get to know you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they went home knuckled up, and sometimes the cops were involved, and you know, and uh, it was a it's an interesting gig, and it's like I did it for about eleven, twelve years. I mean, it was kind of on off. It wasn't always my main like gig. It was you know extra money. You know, how it is you're in the city, like you know, you'd always use extra money. So. Sure, especially cash usually, right? Yeah, cash. Yeah, yeah, and um. Yeah, I always tell people that was my first uh, day school. Like, is you know, is you you teach at the school at DePaul like I do, and um, the first thing is kids. They kind of like they have this thing where it's like they're scared scared to talk to people, like you know, like man on street interviews and and stuff like that. And that was never a thing for me because I've dealt with cops, uh, gangbangers, uh, just random people, and who said all types of stuff to me because they were mad about something that wouldn't let them in the bars or asked them to leave because they did something. So that was always for me. It was never like, you know, walking up to somebody, hey, how's it going? I'm a reporter for this and that and the third. And I'd like to ask you about a couple questions about this and that and third. And 
never a thing for me. I just walk up and start, you know, talking to people. Was there ever a point when you're doing this that you were scared? Oh, yeah. I mean, the place I worked at was, like, a weird place. I always called it, like, a social experiment because in the, from, like, 9 to, like, I will say 11, it was, like, mostly, like, punk shows and metal. So it was mostly, like, white people. But they started playing hip-hop, like, around 11. So you saw, like, a lot of those people leave and then, you know. Um, a change what? of the audience. Yeah, like. yeah. It different does, yeah, what we call these days audience engagement. <laughs> definitely like <laughs> it'll definitely some of that where some of the black folks will get there kind of early and be like, hey man, is this the right place? You like this stuff? Are, are we in the right spot? I thought this was supposed to be a hip hop show. I'm like, yeah, it is. Just kind of who's play Johnny Rotten? <laughs> yeah, so it was it was uh interesting and I guess in terms of like wow, this I think about it, like this everybody I know from back then, what they see me doing now, it was like, yes. Yeah, that guy used to work here and everything else, but man, I saw saw a lot of stuff, saw a lot of ugly, ugly stuff and some stuff like at at one point in time at three o'clock in the morning, everybody's a jerk. So I'm, I'm saying I usually would use another word, and I don't know if you can. Curse you can do whatever you want. Okay, you well, you should feel free to speak however you want on this podcast. If it if it's too hot for the podcast, I can always bleep it, but I usually don't. Okay, well, yeah, three o'clock in the morning, everybody's an asshole and. Not everybody, but most folks. And the place I worked at was a 4 a.m. bar. And then on Saturday, it was a 5 a.m. bar. So these, you dealt with the people who have been drinking since 2 o'clock and they still can kind of get a couple more drinks before they at home and do whatever. So it was uh, definitely, uh, it was kind of similar to, if I can explain to listeners, and maybe it's kind of similar to what was going on at the movie Roadhouse, Practice Swayze. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, man. Like this, I mean, I mean, like somebody pulled a knife on me once. Uh, what else? Uh, somebody followed me home. Um, been been threatened. So in the followed home situation, what do you do? Did you know you were being followed, or was yeah, I was kind of know? He was like following me for a while. I'm just like, yeah, I'm gonna drive through North Lawndale. I got lost him then. So <laughs> I didn't want to. As he wanted to read about it after that. Come on through. <laughs> come on through. Yeah, if you want to come yeah, pull, on through? Yeah, pull up. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I just kind of noticed that where a lot else. I'm just I've been to court a few times. Um, yeah, one person bit me. What? Yeah. So what? Okay, I if if the person bites you, then you pretty much have license to do whatever, right? Like to get them off of you. Yeah, we. It's well, that's that's the thing. It's if something happens and we the police are called and we have to write a report, it's all about defending yourself as someone. Like touches you or in your face or or threatens you, like it's it's go time. <laughs> so you do what you got to do, and that's that's happened before. Where you know I have to you know put somebody down and in front of other folks. And I think about the industry that we like the most is we want an audience when somebody's acting up because if someone sees you get called a bitch or 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 the n word on Tuesday, they don't think it's cool to do that on Saturday. So you got to nip that in the bud right away. It's all about image and. And respect, and you look at it where it's um, it's not what I want to do, but it's what I, you know, I'm gonna do it, and it's gonna happen whether you like it or not, because he's already crossed that line. So I have to match your energy. It's funny <laughs> to me because seeing you, you would go, "There's the the peaceful professor <laughs> from DePaul, <laughs> or or the the reverend at the church." You you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, it wouldn't. The first thing that came to mind would, at least for me, looking at you, wouldn't be 
that you're a bouncer. Like I always see you when I see you usually smiling. Like you have a you have a a friendly demeanor. So I, I'm kind of terrified now of what you <laughs> must be like when you get angry. I guess I'm one of those people where it's like, you know, you read comments like I do. I guess it's kind of like, you know, Incredible Hulk. He's like how the banner is. He's chill and nice, but when it's time to throw down, throw you down, throw down. It's time to throw down, yeah. So you, <laughs> you said that it, 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 it's what your first J school, your first journalism school, was being in front of this. So you really do believe that it helped to put you on the path to doing the job the way that you do it. Yeah, it did. It did. And we obviously these days we deal with a lot because of what we discuss and who we are and people trying to say stuff to us because of that. And I'm just sit there and I'm just like, okay, well, well cool. It's kind of like I always think of it like um, what Patrick Swayze said in uh, in um, Roadhouse, like you know, like be nice until it's turn until it's time not to be nice. So I feel like it's you can use the same amount of energy to be nice to someone as to being an asshole. And fortunately in our field, a lot of folks choose uh, the latter. So. It's been, yeah, it's interesting, and it's funny because when I tell people that, that know me from journalism and writing, like, oh, yeah, I used to be a bouncer. Like, what? Same re- reaction as you. And then my friends and everybody I knew from back then, like, you're writing now? Like, yeah. So it's uh, interesting. I'm one of those people that can float in so many different, like, worlds where I have Southside friends, you know, Inglewood, South Shore, where I grew up, High Park, wherever. And I got friends, you know, Wicker Park, West Loop, remember, I'm one of those people that can float in different circles. For some people, that's they look at it as a politician or they look at it as somebody that's like that's slimy or something like that. Mm. And, but for me, I just I was, you know, parents were were CPS teachers, so we we traveled a lot, like, you know, during the summers yep. and had the weekends off and we would go to different places and many of those places were one of the, the few uh people from the diaspora. So you had to, you know, um navigate all it was I would do a lot of code switching like they call these days. It was it was a lot of it. But for me I never like changed up my, my language. Like some people do they're like, hey how are you doing? And then they, they run their homies like man what's up bro it's cracking everything else. You know I'm, I say that to everybody <laughs> I say that you know how that goes like <laughs> No the code switch is, is real. It's very, very real. I I love that you are becoming more prominent. And the reason why is because you, to me at least, you represent a rise in the importance of independent and neighborhood media. I I think that there are a bunch of people that are on that same spectrum, but seeing you be someone who is really out there doing the the legwork in neighborhoods to find out what's going on in those neighborhoods – and now being given a bigger platform at some times to be able to do and direct some of that coverage is pretty cool. Before you got to the Sun-Times, how did you approach writing, covering neighborhoods in Chicago that are often undercovered? Well, it started out from, like I said, like both my parents are retired CPS teachers. And I grew up in a family of people who are activists, um, educators, uh, social workers, police officers, members of Nation Islam, members of Black Panther Party. So a lot, I saw a lot of conversations growing up about black life in Chicago, things that that, that people in neighborhoods knew about that didn't get out there in the Sun-Times and the Tribune and other places. 
And I was always a, a fan of media even before I was in, got involved in journalism. So my parents would, I would, we would go to the newspaper stand. I was around the corner from our house. We would. In we, South Shore? In South Shore, yeah. And um, we would, my, during the week we would buy the Sun-Times, but on Sundays we would buy the Tribune and Sun-Times. So you know, dad would ask for what they called a, a one-in-one. And, and I always, I read all these, I would read what was going on in the city. And I taught myself to read from what my mother says from reading comic books. So my uncles who were police officers would always bring me a bunch of you know, comic books, you know, everything, you know, X-Men, Avengers, uh, Justice League, um, all that stuff, all the comics you can you can think of that I just kind of just took it from there. And I was always felt like I was someone that was a bit of a an outlier where I was like, I would always know like these random, like random ass like facts. Who, who would care, who would know like a hot, where a hockey player was born or what league he played before he got to the NHL. I was always kind of, Knew that stuff, so I was a bit of, you know, a nerd in, in that sense, and I was always a big, you know, um, history buff, and it was always something where I was kind of looked at things where you know, this is something I felt like, you know, people they need to know this, you know, and you know, we like to say we got to get on our horse and drown to say I want to be a voice with a voice. I never looked at it that way. I kind of looked at it more so as like. You know, um, amplifying voices like folks have voices. They, I saw all this growing up. Just on my block alone, we had a guy that that played for the Bears. We had we had a guy that played for that uh, was a CJ bus driver. Yeah, my parents were teachers, and you had all these different people, so many so many different things. I always tell people like South Shore is one of the diverse neighborhoods in the city, not in terms of like race. I was saying in terms of, like economics and what people did for a living. Just think of people who are from that neighborhood. Myself, Kanye, Michelle uh, Obama. Um, D. Herbo, um, Jabari Parker, or one of Obama's first offices was on 71st Street when he the uh, state center. I mean, the guy that's written about, uh, Kamal Murray, who had the excess tennis um, village, who I grew up like a block away from, but <laughs> never knew. Like, it was weird because like, it was kind of clandestine neighborhood. You only stayed with the, the kids on your block. Sure. So you didn't really mess around with the other kids. And you just kind of, it was enough of us. So we just kind of stayed in our block. That's crazy. Um, I, I I actually know uh, Kamal's. I went to college with Kamal's sister, so I know her. And I, I'm so happy for what he's doing uh, with excess and, and tennis on the South Side. It's pretty cool. That's another story for another day. Because I because I'm <laughs> I know you're trying to take the spotlight off you. This is about you. Like we talking about you, so we're gonna keep talking about you. Okay. <laughs> what What do you think South Shore did for you? Well, I grew up, it was it's right there at a hop, skip, and jump in the lake. So it was, we were always at the lakefront, um, at the South Shore Country Club. I know people call it the Cultural Center, but you grew up over there, you still call it the Country Club. And um, I would be there. I would be at the 75th Street Beach. I would be at Rainbow Beach. Oh, I loved Rainbow Beach as a kid. Yes. I, played and that, I mean, I grew up in Roseland. Okay, so yeah. for us to come all the way to Rainbow Beach, you know what's amazing? I had this conversation with Rasheed Davis where he d- runs a really cool thing called Saturday's Club, where he does supplemental educational stuff for kids that are in, I want to say, in between like third and seventh grade. And he took them to see the lake, took the kids on a trip to see the lake. It's amazing how many kids who've grown up in Chicago have never been to the lake. Yes. I remember they, yeah, they had that um, on the shy too. And also I remember on one of Common's, uh, his second album, how what song it was in it went by, you know, about it was basically talking about how a lot of his friends hadn't been passed downtown. Like our city is just so like segregated. Like you just 
we like we believe it's like even though some of it is a lot of it is you know intentional, but it gets to the point where we believe it. Like we don't some of it's like even today, like some some folks they won't hang out downtown out in the standard neighborhood, or some people just only stay up north and won't go west or east of a certain neighborhood or a certain street. So it's kind of weird, you know, how that all happens. I know you asked me about writing, so I don't want to like. No, you can <laughs> you can talk about whatever you want. But I mean, I think all of this, all of our experiences, I think, like shape, you know, who we end up becoming. And I, I remember being in college. So, grew up in Roseland. We moved when I was fourteen to Homewood. So then I go to HF. So I have that experience of four years being in the suburbs. I remember getting to DePaul and living on the north side and being freaked out by the numbers going the wrong way. Yeah, that's that's, that's crazy because like uh, when I because I lived up north for a while and uh, gave my friends my address and they they got completely lost. They were like, "Where am I?" Where is it? It's also like that thing where they say, um, "What uh, Southsiders can't read or and uh, Northsiders can't count or uh, vice versa." Yeah, like those yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> it's true. I remember being like, "Wait, why are the numbers?" getting bigger going this like that's not how it works like it's always worked that the numbers are getting smaller as i'm as i'm going north it was a real like it 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 really does let you know how much we don't we don't always get and it's i mean i don't blame my parents for that i mean my my parents were very culturally forward but we weren't spending any time on the north side none everything that was happening was happening within Roseland or Hyde Park or South Shore or Pill Hill, like everything was happening in a particular area. You know, I remember thinking that the the end of the world was 111th in Michigan because <laughs> my, my brother went to Mendel. So, I mean, I remember thinking, oh, well, that's that's really far. And now I know it's not far at all from from where our house was on 112th and Green. So. I think all of us have that thing as Chicagoans that we need to get over. I'm trying to do more exploring now, like with neighborhoods that I don't ordinarily hang out. Because sometimes you're like, man, I I didn't know that there was this particular food over here or something that I really, really like that I now have access to that I would have never thought of when I was a child. Oh, yeah, for, for me, because my mom was really big into, into uh, like, you know, going to thrift stores and stuff like that. A lot of them were on the north side, so we would always you know, go to the north side. And she was she was um she was really big into science fiction. Like she was she was a Trekkie. And, oh really? Yeah. And my dad was into like racquetball and like and like tennis and like um what else? Uh like um fish and everything else. So we tried we was all over the city all the time. So it never was a thing for me to be like, oh where you guys hanging out at tonight? Oh Wicker Park? Oh cool. Oh Justin Park? Okay, cool. You know and yeah, so obviously that or what she was into obviously influenced what they were into obviously influenced me and, and our family was was kind of like we they're kind of looked at people on our block kind of looked at us as like the hospitals they looked at us like the perfect like black like middle class family because both my parents were teachers and educated and everything else and we were obviously when you grew up in a household like that you know um, people started to say like you know, all the stuff that when. When you start to see black people, they don't they don't sound or look like the black people that they're used to. So you get all the the black person that's in your head, right? Yeah, you get you get like um, plus obviously 
being a hockey fan growing up and uh-huh. um, and being in, in some of the stuff I was into, obviously that caused a lot of uh, odd and a lot of weird looks. And, uh, you know, people are like, you know, why are you liking this that white boy stuff or Uncle Tom this or, or like, why are you doing that or why are you into that? And you're just kind of like, well, that's why I like. Doesn't like me any more, any more lesser or anything like that. So, but yeah, it's always something that that's, that's something I really like. It's kind of like discover, you know, like like why do people still why are we still doing that? Like this, why do you think we're still doing that? We, we program our, our our programming is uh reprogrammed and. I think we, we we're programmed to think like only certain things are are for white people and certain things are are for black folks or or whomever, and that's something I feel like that we gotta break out of. I mean, my parents were always was like, you do whatever you never. They never told me like, don't do this or don't do that. They were also they were always like, hey, you can do that, but have knowledge of self, know who you are, know what that means when, when you're out somewhere that. People will see you a certain way. Like, you can be, it could be okay in South Shore and being be in Bridgeport or Canaryville and not be okay. <laughs> Facts. So, yeah, so it's um, not staying top of neighborhoods, but I mean, all neighborhoods have a, have a reputation. But yeah, so it was always something for me where I'll just like, where, you know, where did, I knew where it came from, but. It doesn't really happen that much anymore because we see we the diaspora is huge. I mean, we we do so many different things, and like, why would you like why would we limit ourselves? Well, that being said, I do have to ask you, and I know that you and I have talked a little bit about this on the radio show. How does the the black kid from South Shore become a hockey fan? Because you're not just a like it, you're not just out here talking about the Blackhawks. You're talking about the game. Of hockey, so how does that happen? Well, growing up, I uh, I remember watching the '88 Olympics, the Calgary Olympics, and seeing the Soviet team. And my favorite color was is red, and I just saw like they were a really good team. Like the, they revolutionized the sport at the time. And you kind of look at the sport now. A lot of stuff that the Russian player did, you see all over hockey. I mean, you know, you saw what happened with uh, the Red Wings in the uh, early '90s and late '80s. And you see that happening happen with a little bit with the Blackhawks, and that that influence is all over hockey because obviously with hockey culture, if like if it's not if it's not Canadian, it's it's wrong somehow. Or and you saw the pushback a lot of those players got when they first got here, but you started to see like their imprint all over the game. But it was I guess for me it was just I thought it was dope. I never it was never like oh it's a bunch of white guys out there, you know like. I mean, you know when when Chance does Laszlo home and Holmes and they had the other guy like during the last Hawks championship run when they walked up to the guy who's like Black Hawks are so good they got black people liking hockey. Yes, it's one of those things like cause when everybody sees stuff like that they always tag me on Facebook or, or find me on Twitter. Like, hey, do you see this? Do you see this? I'm like, yeah, I saw it, but it's it's cool. But it's kind of like one of those things where it's like we gotta like move past that. Like it's but. It's a great game and super athletic and a lot of fun. Yeah, when I finally got to actually play, it was it was really fun because uh, fast forward, like uh, back up a little bit when uh, when I was uh, writing for Chicago side, I remember uh, one of the uh, senior writers at the time were out somewhere and he was like, "What's your favorite sport?" I was like, "Favorite sport is hockey." He's like, I "Used to write about being 
a black man in hockey. And I kind of was like, whoa, 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 like, you know, like at first, because I was still feeling kind of weird about my fandom because, you know, I was like, you know, teased about it and stuff like that. But, you know, I was just like, I kind of sat back for a couple of days, was like, you know what? And fuck it, we're going to do this. And I wrote the story and we went back and forth about it. And then we posted it online. I remember them telling me, yes, yeah, online now, looking at my phone and looking at it. And I was just like, like, holy shit, this is happening. And it, it took off from there. And then all of a sudden, I, I heard from all these black folks from all over the world, like, emailing me and DMing me and was like, thank you. <laughs> this is exactly how I felt. Uh, it's exactly how I felt. And it's good to see somebody, like, you know, put it out there. Like, you just realized that you were speaking for a community that, or a group that never existed, you never thought existed. You're representing a contingent. Yeah. Of people that were like, are there others like me? And then it turns out that there were a ton of people that are like you. Yeah. How'd that feel? Well, it, it felt like, it felt just, it felt like all the stuff when I got made fun of or teased for liking a quote-unquote like sport. It felt like it was worth it. Like it was the ends justified the means. You know, it was like somebody's got to step out there and do and do this. And I wasn't doing it just to. It was just my own personal like story. So when you talk about yourself and writing, it's like really personal. And some people, that's why some people can't write columns and don't want to be too giving of themselves. But to find out that I was speaking for so many people, like it was crazy. How good of a skater are you? Uh, jury's still out on that. Um, what? Wait, what? Why I mean, I, I think I'm pretty good. It's one of those things where, you know, when I first started, it was kind of like, um, it was kind of like, uh, Cedric Entertainer and, uh, Kings of Comedy. It was like, it was like, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> and he slips and slides and yeah. then falls. Yeah. Well, for my first class I took was like with a bunch of kids, you know, I see other kids like everything else. I'm just like, uh, but you know, like you play when you play a sport like that or skate, like you gotta be kind of fearless. And I just started getting better at it. And I mean, skating backward, I'm still pretty slow at that. But and I ended up joining a, a league with a bunch of players that kind of was on the same level as me. So that was really, really fun to like, be around people that that learn how to learn how to skate too. And yeah, I got ended up on a couple of teams and scored a couple of goals. And you know, um. Avoided some fights, not avoid fights, but somebody saw me on ice and was like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I think that would probably be the way I would feel. I don't I don't know how I would feel about fighting you. What, what's, what's been your favorite goal that you scored? Uh, let's see. I remember in our league, it was like a team where we didn't really like. I mean, it's, it's weird because, like, you know, with rat hockey, is it's kind of similar to, like, you know, pick up basketball or whatever. Like, you got some people out there who – who think they're going to the NBA or take a game too seriously and everything else. So I remember somehow I got on a breakaway and I like uh deep the guy and then went I just I just remember I just remember like being alone and seeing him and seeing the goal the back of the net and people cheering like even the got people from the other team was was like was cheering because they know how hard I've been working. I'm a bigger guy so it's not like you know I can just be like so like that. So it was it was pretty dope and I still I have the I have the puck uh and I had the puck that from the game that I scored. I had that on my uh, desk at home, and uh, it's, it's it's pretty dope because a lot of people saw how hard I was working at, even the other team. So it was it was pretty cool, like to go through the line, everybody like so like that, like <laughs> you see like in an NHL game. So you don't, you don't really get to do that in in normal life, but that was pretty dope to have that happen. No doubt about it. I I have a lot of respect for you, Evan, because 
I think that you lend a much needed conscience to reporting on a, on a lot of different levels. Like I I find you to be I find you to be so knowledgeable about everything that you're a good governor on what is and what isn't news, what is or what isn't deserving of the conversations that are going on. How did you foster your sense of ethics when it comes to journalism and generally speaking, like how you are involved on social media? Good question. <laughs> I guess I do this me, for a living, man. I know. I see it. I know. I listen, I listen to it. I listen to it on the way to, on the way to uh, picking up my kid for school. Yeah. Um, I would say it kind of goes back to like for me before I even got in, in journalism, I was thinking about three career paths: either be a teacher, a police officer, or a uh, firefighter. And um, I was always about helping people, like just being this. Being in a community and helping folks and just being out there because I remember growing up, my dad would always say to me, you know, always bring something to the table. And for a long time, I didn't really know what that meant. You know, I thought it meant in the in the classic sense, but it was basically trying to say, like, you know, what are you going to do for a society? How are you going to contribute? And for me, I, it was for me, it was it was journalism. Man. And I started writing until about 30, 31. And. It was kind of something where I just I, I backed into it, honestly, and I remember like thinking, like, I think I want to get involved in this because I was always someone who, was, who wrote about a lot of different things and talked about different things on social media. And a friend was like, man, I used to be a journalist. I was like, man, I don't know. I saw that saw that last season of The Wire. It didn't make it look so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a mess. <laughs> like, holy. But um, what happened? I, oh, okay, so I wrote a blog and – and Chicago Now was just the Trib's uh, blogging community, like, picked it up, and I started just blogging about all these different things. And remember, we had, like, a meetup with all these all these different, like, bloggers. People were, like, blogging about anything you can imagine. Like, so one of the bloggers was the managing editor for Extra Bilingual Newspaper. At the time, the city was one of the three, you know, Latino newspapers, like, you know, Raza, Oi, and them. And she wanted to reprint one of her blogs in the paper. I was like, yeah, sure. So she told me it was going to be in the paper so I remember, like most journalists do when they get that first one they run to the newspaper stand pull it out flip through the paper I saw it by Evan F. Moore and I was like yeah this is it's going to be the way that I uh, I contribute this is I found my niche I found something I was passionate about so it kind of just went from there and talked to other journalists some of them who left the field some of them were still in the field they were very open and honest about the field and how what all the stuff that we deal that with journalists deal with layoffs and being overworked and underpaid and and everything else and not I thought it was like the most like beautiful thing. And so at the time I was married and I had other people like help me out and be like, yo, like this is what I want to do. So it's kinda like you when you were talking with Sahada the other day and the part about having people around you like help you out. And it was like, you know, you know, I was watching that, you know, listening to that. I was like, yeah, that was me. You know, like I had some people like help me out along the way. And was it easy? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hell no, it's not. And, um, you know, for me, I just started freelancing, you know, like just doing the like doing the stuff in the red eye, like uh, Rolling Stone. And like I remember my first like freelance check 
it was probably enough for like gas money and a and a six pack. <laughs> you like I always tell people like man like this people like try to lowball you and get you to do something for free, but it like I gotten to the point where I gotten further along in my career where I was commanding like what what the going rate is for freelancing and for me I just was kind of just looking around to see what I can do because I was like versed in a lot of things. Do I don't want to be a sports guy, don't want to do news, do I wanna so I was kinda looking around for that and you know how it is when you do just sports, people kind of look at you like that's all you can be. Yeah, that's all you can. Yeah, that's all you can be. All you can be is someone who does sports. The, right. that, you, the toy department. That's right. where you work. Is the toy department. Right, but you know, I didn't know that I grew up doing voter registration and and volunteering for various uh, campaigns. I volunteered for uh, Barack Obama's Senate campaign, and after that was done, I ended up uh, volunteering in Quimar Rules Office. Who was you know, who placed him in the state senate. Once Obama moved up to, you know, being a U.S. senator. And that was pretty cool to kind of watch that because around that time when Obama had uh, did the Democratic National Convention, that speech, now it was kind of like that speech that kind of like put him in the front of a national audience that kind of put him over the top. And to see people, you know, back home, like walking to the office, like looking for him, like he's not the state senator anymore. It's kind of one of those things that's cool that people find out about, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, there's a difference between a U.S. senator and a state senator. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, is Barack here? Is but, it, like, people will literally walk in with like, Obama, yeah, where you at, man? Like, <laughs> it was wow. Like, wow. That's incredible. Yeah, that's so the impact that the reach that Speed's had. And, but yeah, for example, so, I was always around different things. I remember my first like TV appearance as a reporter. I did Chicago Tonight's uh, um, Reporters Roundtable. I remember, you know, Joe Weissman, like, you know, asking me, like, hey, do you know who Kwame Raul is? And it's like one of those things where they bring you on to be the, just the sports guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know who he is. And I started kind of talking about some things. But in my mind, like, yeah, he doesn't really know that I volunteered for him before. And he's just, that's something here just to be the sports guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those are always interesting. And then you uh, impress people with stuff that that you know uh, when it comes to it. Was there ever a point when you're getting those small checks for, you know, a sandwich and a six-pack where you go, this ain't it, fam. Like, maybe maybe I should take my talents and go do something else. Oh, yeah. I had those conversations with wife at the time and other people. And I was just kind of like, I knew I wasn't going to get rich, but I was just like, man, like, I want a comfortable, decent living at least. Your brother get that? Dang, man, you know? And so there's definitely times where, you know, I've gotten, like, I was I worked for, I got laid off a couple times, and other ones, it was more so like, you know, we want to hire you, but, you know, we don't have any money. And you're just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, so it was, I was kind of looked at, it was like, you know, I'll have a full-time job, one that has benefits and everything else, I can take care of the bills, but in the meantime, I'll do freelance writing and, and, um, you know, um, try to find something along the way because I think a lot of people, it's like, I think a lot of people are, don't understand, like, hey, like, you can still have a, a part-time, you can still have a full-time gig and still write. And maybe you don't get in journalism the way you want because, obviously, with B-reported gigs, they'll do stay there till they die. <laughs> they true. Rarely, they rarely open up. And I think people, they kind of look at it like, I want to be, this I want to do what that person is doing, 
And they don't see, like, like someone like Stephen A. Smith, I know he gets a lot of flack and everything, but you look at, like, what he was doing when he first started to, like, now, that's the thing I always tell people. Like, look at that person's struggle, what they were doing before, before you judge them when they're on ESPN and making millions of dollars. Like, they were working at a a community newspaper covering, like, girls' volleyball. Right. I mean, you, before, before that person gets to where they're at, they have to cover these games. I always tell a lot of students that, too, because I hear from – a lot of students and other folks are like, how'd you make it? How'd you do this? And how'd you do that? And I'm just like, well, I took all every everything, you know? Like, I remember when I graduated from Dreadland School at Roosevelt, the day the family had a party, I got a call to cover a volleyball game. And I had to leave the party and go do that. Like, this is what you want. This is your way in. So you, you got to go. <laughs> you got to make that call. What's something that you think – Mainstream, and you can define that however you want. Mainstream media or news media is missing as far as how it could be better. I think that we're still using you know, that that old model. I mean, because uh, many of us in our field, like we don't have those that pipeline. All they say <clears throat> that um, I think for me, a lot of kids. Answer uh, to answer this better when I like uh, do um, when I was um, sometimes I go over to Leo High School and talk to the students over there for their news reporting class. And I remember the, one of the first times I asked them like, "How many black journalists you know not on TV and not on ESPN?" No one raising their hand. Like every time I speak to like a group, just like that, all to a person. And most of most of us, most of black folks don't. They know a black journalist. They don't know when I live in their neighborhood. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think that's kind of part of it where we kind of need to make kids, like, think writing is cool and and creating content is a cool thing. Like, it's just many of our kind of white kind of parts. It's something they wanted to do since they were a kid. And they had, like, a family member who was already a journalist and they kind of already had a leg up. But many of us, that's not the case. So, you know, how do we make writing and cool the kids, you know, and seeing what journalists make and and you see all these layoffs, you see what happened with Sports Illustrated, you saw what happened at, at DNA Info where I was at and so I think it's we have to find a way to dispose like uh journalism to people of color. I mean it's we kinda just kinda go for the Madill kids, the Mizzou kids. There's nothing wrong with that, but you probably want you want people you want the reporting to reflect. You want the reporting in the newsrooms and the websites to reflect the people in that city, in the particular city. If you see all white guys, and you ask someone to write a story about something going on in South Shore Inglewood, are they going to get it all the way right? Probably not. Maybe that's not their fault. Who knows? But if you live in a city like this, you should you should have those those um those connects. What's the most common question that you get from your students? How? Uh, everyone, like, um, some of my students, they, they see what you what you do, and then they see you on social media, and they see the people you talk to, and, and I'll say, like, I need to speak to this certain person about this subject, and I'm just like, oh, I know that person or somebody. I'm not, like, flexing or bragging. It just, you have those, you know, you have those connections. And... Yeah, I'll say that, like how you get into business, like how do you stay. Um, 
like it's a lot of fear of like talking to like people like you and and Jason and some of the people in, in town because um, I remember when I first started like I was I covered a game and I think who was I remember the only I remember I covered a Cubs game for the Daily Herald I filled in for Bruce Miles once and like um, so I would go in the clubhouse and the only people that you know that of color was at the time was Fred Mitchell and Sahadif. So they you see people, you know, like you, people you see on the people you read for years and other folks and like, you know, you like the new person. And it's like this weird thing was like, I don't know what's happened to anyone else, but it seems like the black journalists, like you're wearing a press. People look at your press pass, but don't look at you in your face. And you're just like, I thought it was crazy at first, but I started talking to other folks. They're like, yeah, that happened to me too. <laughs> and you're just like, what the hell is that about? Like, <laughs> you don't see my big ass in here. I'm a, I'm a large man. Like, come on, like this. So. But, yeah, I think that because growing up, I will always see, you know, like Mary Mitchell, Lacey J. Banks, like, you know, I just said Fred Mitchell, like you will see people. And I always kind of took it upon myself, you know, once I got on, you know, stealing one of your lines, list before you can climb. And um, I always, I'm always accessible to young people who ask me questions about the business and everything else. So I'm just thinking about out that person people didn't know that people ignored or walked past now someone that walked down the street, like, are you having enough more? Like, yeah, I find you on Twitter, I rest on your ass. It's, it's crazy. Like, it just happens sometimes. You could be, like, at the store, like, grocery shopping. I mean, I remember it happened once I was on a date and somebody walked up to me. I was just like. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> but, so, so, wait, is that, a, is that a great flex moment when you get recognized while you're on a date or no? It just, it, sometimes it's crazy because, like, it isn't like you're trying to, you know, do it, but it's like it always happens where like you just try to like downplay, like no, it's not even like that. And somebody like, oh yeah, you like, damn, all right, this how it is. I mean, they got me. <laughs> <laughs> like, gotcha. I, I always it, think about because, like you, both my parents, seventy-two combined years in CPS, so two teachers. I always think about. How for a long time, I ran away from that. I ran away from being a teacher. And now, here we are, full circle, where I end up back in a classroom. And I love it. Like, I love my time with my students and what they take from, hopefully, what they take from the experience and what they give me from the experience What's it like for you, having had two you know, teachers for parents, a family full of teachers, you end up doing all this stuff, you're throwing people out of nightclubs and bars, and then, boom, you're thinking, I'm a right, I'm going to be a journalist. You, you become a journalist, and then you end up back in a classroom. Do you think it was meant to be that you were going to be in a classroom? I knew I wanted to. I always looked at teachers that way. Like, I was a soft spot for teachers. I'm very vocal and honest about that because my Me mother and father are teachers and and you know you you hear the stories about them telling me how they had to like bring clothes for kids to school and and like you know like bring like soap and deodorant and this is stuff food that, yeah like stuff that stuff that they don't have and then you see folks like I get I understand what why people are Mad at teachers when they strike, but I remember like in certain outlet throughout there, like CPS teachers make X amount of in salary, and to the naked eye, that looks like a lot. And that's the thing that kind of bothers me about 
you know, journalism these days when people just kind of throw stuff out there without no context or anything like that. Like, I'm just like, okay, they make X amount, but do you talk about the standard of living in Chicago and not cheap to live here? I mean, you know, and all the stuff that goes along with being a teacher and, like, they don't have, like, a typical, like, isn't like they can just leave their job after school, <laughs> you know, like, when they step off campus, they can't just, like, leave, leave the school, you know, and I think people don't understand that, but, yeah, so me getting back into teaching, it was kind of like, I always know I wanted to teach, so I was thinking y'all was going to do, like, a city college and one of the suburban schools, and I remember our department head, you know, Jason Martin asked me to speak to one of his classes, and... You know, I was like, okay, I think it's something I want to do. Then, then a couple of months later, I was kind of just like, just emailed him out the blue. It was like, hey, if anything adjunct comes up at the school, just let me know. Can you post it? And he hit me up one day and brought me in and, and offered a class to me. And I was just like, <laughs> word? Okay, that's all it is. Okay. And I guess at the school, they kind of knew, like, they wanted someone that came from a, a community journalism background. And they kind of they kind of felt like the kids were... You know, they, they can write, they can do all this cool stuff, but they didn't really know, like, the city. If I say, if I if, uh, ask a student, like, hey, you know, like, go cover a pre, uh, a conference that at police headquarters, like, you know what, what bus you're going to take? You know what L-stop you're going to get off at? Like, you know what line you're going to get on? Like, you just, you, you know, and I think that's one of the things where I brought to the school where it's like I was, I kind of threw them to the wolves. Like, we'll have this thing called the 77 Challenge. You know, the, the number, the significant number of 77 in the city. <laughs> number of neighborhoods. So I would take I would um assign my students to go to go to certain neighborhoods and get to know the players, cover events there. Like I didn't just some like the Lincoln Park or, or Wicker Park. Like I was like, you're going to Englewood, you're going to Hedwitz, you're going to North Lawndale, you're going to back of the yards, you're going to East Garfield Park. And obviously at first How did know, they respond to it? Oh well, I had one student, it was I remember one student, he was from a neighboring suburb, and I sent him to Austin, and he was like, I'm not going. I'm like, why not? And he was like, I'm afraid of getting shot. I'm like, okay. I was like, you know who else was afraid of getting shot? People who've been shot. So I just told him, I explained it to the class, you know, like, hey, like this, this is around the time when the Muslim ban was going on at the airports. And I just told him, like, you see what happens when – you're fearful of a small group of folk within a community. What happens? You know, like if you're going to be journalist, like you all, you all took this class. Like you obviously want to be journalist. You took this class. You can't be one thing. You can't be in this field. Be scared of people. Cannot be scared of people. If they feel like you're scared. They'll, they see it. You also don't get to pick your assignments. Right. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of chief in this demonstration. So it's like, <laughs> like you're going to, like you like it or not, that's how, that's how it is. Like, how are you going to be a journalist and be scared of people? Did like, that did that student follow through? Uh, that particular student didn't. So we had to kind of work some stuff out. But so that's someone that kind of realized that maybe journalism wasn't really for them. But other students went and you have to, you kids have to get out of their comfort zones and the demographics of, of certain schools. Like, we have a lot of kids that aren't from the city proper. And... They want to do this job, and they want to, you know, X amount of Twitter followers and do all this stuff. They gotta, they gotta see how the sausage is made, and that's where kind of where I, where I, where I came in. What did those students tell you that they got out of the experience? The ones that went through it, things they didn't know about people, they didn't know about the city, they didn't know about people, certain races, different cultures, because 
people don't realize certain things, like certain neighborhoods are known for certain things. If you're covering like a, a police beat or something like that, like certain neighborhoods, it's all about gun violence. And some neighborhoods are all about, you know, like robberies. And I always tell like young people like, hey, like if you really want to see like what Chicago is about in terms of like always like we'll say two Chicago's. I will always reference that a lot in the class. I remember back when I was with Dina Info, I covered a uh, local school council meeting on the north side. And one part of the meeting, they were talking about lights at this park down near the school. And these people were complaining about the wattage of lights. It's people it's too bright. out west. Yeah, it's people out west and out south that would love to have lights in the park. So it was like, that what you complained about? <laughs> And having that that to draw from if you're someone who's covering the city is valuable to understand, like you say, the two Chicago's. Like, understand that there's a difference between what happens in certain neighborhoods and other neighborhoods. Right. In the South Shore, like, we find, we're, finally, and we're finally getting a, a, a grocery store in the old Dominic space on 71st Street. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And you go to Hyde Park— yeah, you, know, you get you have you have a Target, you have a Whole Foods. Trader Joe's is open now. Yeah, which was a a a, a Treasure Island before. Like yep. you have all this stuff. You have people getting stores in the city, stuff in the city that they don't the even new ask Jewel for. Jewel Osco on the other side of UFC. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that one up. I remember one of my students was wanting wanted to go over there and kind of talk to people about it. And I was like, don't ask the simple questions. Don't ask like, hey, this store is great in your neighborhood. I was gonna be like, yeah, this is dope. Yeah, but ask like. After decades of disinvestment of being a food desert, why now? Ask that question, like, why now? Like, And anytime something opens up, I remember when they put a, they put a Starbucks on the 71st in Estonia, and a lot of people were Is skeptical. that the Magic Johnson one? Uh, that I'm like, not sure. I feel like that was a, that's the Magic Johnson one. And that was one of the ones that he, like, spearheaded to, to, to be here. But, yeah, it's weird that, like, it just popped up. It's like, oh, look at that. Yeah, and a lot of people were like, is this for us or is this going to be for the people who they're they going to have here when they, they get us out of here somehow, somehow, some way, shape, or form? So that's why I always tell them, like, just think of, like, people who are in a, a neighborhood that's all of a sudden, like, gentrifying. And, like, for some people, like, like in South Shore, I remember, like, people, like, saw a white, a white guy walking a dog and people were like, <gasps> like, that was, like, their their sign of, like, they coming. <laughs> I joke with uh, Dave Hellum, the comedian, about this all the time because he has a joke about gentrifying neighborhoods, especially on the south side. And I I saw something that it took me aback. There's a family of four, young young white family, two young white girls with their backpacks on. I was This was just the other day. I was getting gas off of Garfield, and they had just gotten off the red line at 55th. And I was like, Really? I, I'm just sitting there going, wow. Like, I never thought that I would see. Like, they're, they were walking east. They they weren't on getting on the bus. Like, they were walking on the north side of Garfield by the Dunkin' Donuts. Wow. And I was just sitting there going, wow. <laughs> the times are changing. Mm-hmm. And y'all are brave. Because I don't know if I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm walking down Garfield, but it was. It's I always like I'll take a snapshot if I see someone that feels like, oh, okay, this is. Dave jokes about skateboarding going on on the South Side that he's not used to seeing 
white kids skateboarding on the south side, like south of, you know, Bronzeville. Mm -hmm. And now you're seeing it and you're seeing some of these neighborhoods expand. I I feel like Inglewood is, I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I think that it's still prime real estate. And at some point, someone's going to really invest in Inglewood because of its proximity to the Dan Ryan. Oh yeah, they're they have a, they're getting a, a continuum of uh, Latinos that's move, Latino that's uh, moving over there, and yeah, it's uh yeah there was I think it's century located. It's a lot of, going on over there, and I remember when they put the whole food there, people were like, oh, they're not they're not gonna want fresh food, fruit, and every all this other stuff. And who doesn't want fresh food? Stereotypes, man. Like you see. You see a, a kid on the L like at 8 o'clock in the morning eating flaming Hots. I mean, it's like. That's true. Yeah, you're just like, yeah, ah, you know, so. But, yeah, you know, it's the kind of stuff I always tell I, I tell my students about. Like, this this city is, is bigger than Lincoln Park or, or, the, or the Loop Campus. Or so Hyde Park. Right. And, and most people go, like, for my class right now, it's called Chicago Uncover, Un- Uncovered. And we basically talk about coverage and and um west side and south side communities and, and also other communities of color in the city and we um read articles and we show like we show them like hey like sometimes you'll see like a word in a story a lot of people like to use inner city or or quote-unquote poor neighborhoods and urban <laughs> urban yeah and we just kind of tell them there's other words you can use, and you just kind of just notice like how certain folks are are written about. Like it's, some of the stuff was over their heads, and some of them was like I never knew that. Like you know, and yeah, that's what we uh, so we're dealing with. And I'm always one of those people that feels like I know, like the, obviously the demo def, the demographics of the class could be better, but if I can you know tell some students like hey, show some empathy in your reporting. And treat these don't do parachute journalism to drop in and write a story and just leave out. Like get to know people. Like this, there, you people 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 will surprise you. Get to know someone, you get to know them or whatever, and you're just kind of like, well, it'll come out in, in your reporting. After all this time of working in a couple of different places, doing some stuff that's independent media, doing more neighborhood coverage. What was it like for you to transition to working in a newsroom like the Sun Times? Uh, it was difficult. I mean, because I was freelance for a long time, and like I was kind of unaware of like newsroom like politics. At times, in other newsrooms, like stuff would happen, and you just kind of was unaware of it. I guess for me, like I said, I was freelance for a long time, and I kind of had my own way about about things, and it took a while for me to kind of like understand it like it's kind of like asking like russell westbrook to to play like andre miller and russ is gonna be like i'm not comparing myself to russ in any other circumstance but sure you can but, why not yeah sir so, so it's like you're used to doing things a certain way and that certain way has gotten to gotten you to where you're at now you're like well you're in the big leagues now so you're in a top 50 paper like anytime you do anything then that's gonna be connected to it so at first it was it was rough and after a while, I got to understand it, whereas, like, mistakes you made in another place is, is, is tolerated there and you, you hear about it. And so... <clears throat> do you feel like you have a better grasp of navigating it now? I do. I do. 
I mean, because it wasn't like I went, like, straight to school, play from school internship to newsroom job. Like, yeah, I was in the newsroom sometimes at DNA Info, but we were neighborhood reporters, so you were in the neighborhoods. So, but, yeah, it's something that took for me a while to, like, to learn was to, you know, like, not to be so uh, headstrong in terms of how I went about. Because, obviously, when you're a freelancer, you don't work and you don't eat. You have that hustler's mentality. And it's pretty much as, you know, when you're doing that, you don't spend a whole lot of time with the editor like you do now. And, like, you have an editor. I work with a couple of them at the paper. And, you know, we'll go over some things. Like, hey, that's how I want things done. And and for a while, it would, for me, it just wouldn't stick. I was just like, I want to do this. I wanna, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to shake the table. You know, you, like, you, you get to it. You're just like, in your mind, you're just like, man, I'm trying to, you know. Start like, a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, man, they hate on me. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. But you just realize, like, you just, you just, at the heart of it is writing. Like, it's, once you're writing and it just copy gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, and that's when things start to open up for you. And for a long time, I was, I was immediately a knucklehead about it. What advice would you give someone who wants to improve their writing? I would say read. Like, I mean, obviously I can say, like, read and that's it. But I'll say, like, not just read it, just, like, how they're wording things and, you know, attribution. Um, like, make sure, like, some places they'll work in freelance. You know, it's like you just send a copy in and they'll take care of it from there. But a place like this, like, it's got to be as clean and as tight as possible. And admittedly, that's something I struggle with. And I just kind of had to realize, like, the, the paper, like, we got Pulitzer Prize winners and Lister Girl winners and everything else, and they have editors. So they have editors, and you don't need one. You know? <laughs> so I will say, like, this, anyone that you're a, a big fan of, like, just, you know, read their word. Like, pick their gr- brain. Like, reach out to them. Like, don't be afraid to email somebody or shoot a DM and be like, hey, I'd like to meet with you to talk to you about this and that and the third, because you just never know. Like, some people think you work at a, a big-time place, like, here or 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 sometimes whatever, and they think like, well, that person's not going to talk to me. Like I, I like I said, I, I talk to students all the time from different people. Like I have no problem like speaking to somebody. Like it's because I was that person a long time ago. So I'm not going to like you know do that to somebody. So, so that that's that's your advice on how to become better at writing. Who do you who influenced you? Which writers do you, did you look at and read and go? I I might be able to do some of that stuff. Uh, I would say um, before I start that, um, I have a quick story. Um, I know I mentioned it to you on, online once. I first, my first writing like award was was in eighth grade, and back then, you know, your teacher would be like, "Hey, we're doing this poetry contest," and they kind of like forced the class to do it. And so I did it, and like I put, I tell you, I put the like the least amount of effort in it. A couple weeks later. Glenner and Brooks called our house and they had to speak to me and told me I won this poetry contest and won some money and everything else. So I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. And I told my mom, like, yeah, Glenner and Brooks on the phone says I won a poetry. My mom's like, what? Glenner and Brooks? It's like, you know, that's someone that's huge in our community. So if that was like Walter Payton or Michael Jordan or, or Andre Dawson that would call the house, I'd be like, oh, for real? Oh, man. But, you know, it was, it was I, say, I say I have to say, like, her work was an influence on me. Dave Zirin from The Nation, him, uh, Fred Mitchell, uh, Ida B. Wells. Uh, well, so, like, I get put on a spot and stuff like this, and, like, you know, I'll leave here, and, like, oh, I should have told him that person. Name, I should have told him a hundred more people that I was <laughs> thinking of. 
Yeah, because people like that who, because with my writing, I'm all about, like, packing in as much info as I can. And I'm all because my have, like, two master degrees, and one of them is in, one of them is in, obviously, journalism, one of them, and one of them is in criminal justice. And my undergraduate degree is in history, so I feel like in my writing I use all of those. And, like, I'm always about, because these days where it's here today, gone tomorrow, we have people who all of a sudden, like, don't understand, like, why things are the way they are, and they forget about history. And that's the time on online I remember, like, asking all my non-black followers what they learned about black history and particularly the civil rights movement. And obviously it wasn't a whole lot that they learned. And it, it pretty much stops and starts with Martin Luther King. Yeah, a line and the speech. They know about that line. but They, they maybe know Rosa Parks. Yeah. You know, like, they, they know that story, but it's— They don't know letters of letters from Birmingham jail. They don't know— King was pretty militant. Like, and as that went on, I kind of realized at my all-black Catholic elementary school, we didn't get much uh, much, much of our heroes either. We got, like, the safe version of our heroes. Yep. That we didn't get Nat Turner. We didn't get the Negro Leagues. We didn't get Nason Islam. We didn't get, you know, um, Tulsa Riot Act. So we got, like, all these safe figures. And for me, who had two parents who around some of that stuff, I got to know all the— all the stuff that we didn't get in school. But, yeah, like, this writer's like, you know, this, I always think about in my writing, like, trying to pack in as much information as possible, and I want the takeaway to be that you learn something. It's my favorite humble brag on my dad because he's in a writing group with Gwendolyn Brooks. And, like, that, wow. like, when I was a kid, Gwendolyn Brooks would come to the house. Like, that, or my dad would be going to a meeting with Gwendolyn Brooks. Like, that sort of thing is it's pretty cool. And he wrote a book. Uh, I wonder if you're going to write a book. It's one of the things I, w- I want to ask you. But he, he 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 wrote a book called Warrior the Warrior's Belt. Uh, so Warren Holmes the Warrior's Belt, and it's about Dusable. Like that was that was his white whale. Like I remember being younger and my dad traveling around the Midwest and up and down the Mississippi River looking for information on Dusable so that he could write this book. And the fact that you, your parents are your parents and you don't realize that they like had a life. They're just your parents. Like you don't realize that they had a life before you and your siblings came along. And now I think about some of the people that my father was in a room with and I go, what? Like that to me is insane. Like some of the people that he kind of flippantly will talk about. Like like him talking about uh, Dr. Donda. Mm-hmm. Dr. Donda was my dad's boss. Like her office was next door to his. And growing up, like you don't realize like you're so caught up in what you're doing mm-hmm. that you don't think about like what your family has been through and has put in front of you. It's crazy to to think think about like all the things that your parents like now that we can look back on some of it, you go, oh, they were setting me up for that. They were giving me the cheat code to that, and I didn't realize it. Right. I mean, because at the paper right now, I'm doing a lot of high school sports, and growing up, we would go to a lot of like public league football games and basketball games. And like growing up, I just kind of realized like those guys were like bigger stars to me. Than like pro guys, like 
Right, you know the the game in uh in the Who Dreams movie, you know that I was the public league uh, quarterfinal at the old amphitheater, you know, on <clears throat> out south, and I was at that game. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was at that game, and I remember at the time, like it was like huge for like Marshall to take down King. Yep. Yeah, they had the twin towers: Thomas Hamilton, Rashard Griffith, and Landon Sonny Cox. Like all the good basketball players, like you know, went to King. <laughs> like it was. I would find myself with like a lot of those games, like this, like for me growing up, like they were stars for me, like Jimmy Sanders from Western House, like Deion Thomas from Simeon, like all those, all those guys, you know, like this, you know, Antoine Walker, like when I was, because my first year of the high school, I was at De La Salle and remember like seeing like Antoine Walker and Don McNabb play. They clearly like crushed De La Salle. It was crazy. And like in football, I remember at the time, like, Morgan, I mean, not Morgan Park, but uh, Deal South beating on uh, Martin Carmel in the state playoffs, and I was like Dominic McNabb's senior year, and I was like huge for that to even happen. Oh, there's there, no doubt. Yeah, there were stealing people that year. <laughs> it was incredible. I was, you know, HF. We were number one. They were number two, and they were number one. We were number two, and we were six A. They were five A. Like it was watching Donovan, and yeah, so that was a huge win. Huge win. I know I've kept you forever, and I appreciate it. I feel like it's been uh, very productive. I just want to want to ask you one more thing. What do you see yourself doing? Because your your career arc is fascinating. So what's the next thing? Like what? Where do you see this whole thing going for you? Well, I mean, I like to write a book one day and and just like to tell stories of people. I like to do some cool stuff and like travel and just tell stories. We'll we'll see if that happens. I mean I'm a I'm a dad so it's only so far I can go. So you know, my uh, daughter's uh she's a she's an energetic kid. She's uh turned turn four last week, so she's still like, you know, all over the place. She started pre K this year, so obviously wanna be around more for that. So we'll we'll see what happens. I mean I think I'll you know, some way I'll find a way to put myself in a great situation. I mean, but all kinda all goes back to to writing and it's writing not only writing but like writing well and like telling uh, stories that people get get something out of. I appreciate you doing this, man. I'm glad that we had the chance to like sit down and and that even more people get the opportunity to 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 see the brilliance of one Evan F. Moore. So thanks, appreciate that. All right, I hope you got something out of that. I love talking with guys like his because even though we have very similar backgrounds, our perspectives are different, and I think that. It's one of the things I really admire about Evan is his path is different than mine. His perspective is different than mine, yet we still vibe out, you know? I Like I was saying at the beginning, I really do think that he's someone that is going to be a big deal and very important for media in Chicago. So I thank him. Um, I got time to do... A couple of emails. This one's from, oh, you can email the podcast at houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. So houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. And, yes, I'm getting back to giving you a pod every week. This is from Tim. Tim says, hey, Lawrence, I love the show and enjoyed every episode, even when I didn't know the person before listening. I have two guest suggestions. First, please bring back Barry Rosner. I'll get to that in a minute. And second, since the Gary Goldman episode, a guy who popped in my head is Kyle Kinane. He's from this area and will be in town next month if you want to sit down with more stand-up comedians. That's from Tim. Hey, Tim, 
Yeah, I love Kyle Kinane. He's the voice of Comedy Central Radio on Sirius XM, and he's a Chicago dude. There's a couple of comedians from Chicago that I want to get. I want to get Dion Cole on here, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Like, he's someone that I really would like to talk to. As for Barry Rosner, he has a standing invitation to come back whenever he wants. We text a lot. He's now discovered New Girl. I had to send him the episode of the podcast with Jake Johnson on it. So I was like, yeah, Jake's Jake's kind of become a friend. And he's like, no one told me how stupid this show was. And he meant that in a, a loving way. Like, it was totally a Rosner-type show. And now he loves it. And I, I said to him, I said, I guarantee you that Jake grew up reading your columns. Because Jake's from Evanston. That is Daily Herald country up there. I'm sure that he used to read Barry's columns. So he's he's always got a a standing invite to to come back on the show and on the podcast. But I also want to – Barry's kind of needed a little bit of space. You know, I feel bad bothering him, quite honestly. He's needed a little bit of space, a little space from the guys at the score, like all of it. Like, you know, we need to get away, give him his space. But, yes, whenever he wants to come back, he has a standing invitation. Because we didn't even talk about half the stuff that I want to talk to you with that guy about. He's one of my favorite dudes. I'm I'm – I make no apology about how how I have unconditional love for Barry Rosner. Unconditional. Adore that guy. And you should too. Wait, the the NBA Jam people are still are still getting at me. All right, I need to follow up with them, right? I need to do that. Maybe I'll have Tim Kitzrow, the voice of NBA Jam on the podcast, but I need to, I need to follow up since they've been, now they sent me two to the house of L podcasts at Gmail email account. I'll, I'll follow up and see what this whole thing is about, but that is going to end episode 79. It's a fun episode. Learned a lot. I got some great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm telling you, man, now that I've got this uh, routine back down again, you're going to keep it rolling with some uh, one guest that you would expect to be on this podcast in the next couple of weeks and one that you would not. And I can tell you that both interviews are already done and they're both incredible. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please rate us and write a good review. Give us five stars. Write a good review. It helps with the placement and all that good stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a participant in the podcast. I will talk to you again next week with our next episode. Aight? Aight. Peace.